Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, September 9th, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, Erica, and Tiffany. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. So today, uh, our show is The Gift of Fear, Gut Feelings, Intuition, and Situational Awareness. Uh, it is a jungle out there, as the saying goes, and there are those who aim to do us harm. So we're going to talk about feelings that you may have had that something is not quite right, uh, the little doubts and red flags about certain people and situations. Uh, we are endowed with uh, gut feelings that we can either ignore to our peril or use to our advantage. So we're going to be talking about that. Uh, we'll discuss the difference between true fear and everyday worry and anxiety. Uh, learning to spot danger signals uh, that women in particular and society in general have been taught to ignore. Uh, how can we cultivate our sense of intuition to keep us safe and avoid becoming victims of the predators that are out there? Uh, so it should be a pretty interesting topic. And we are focusing largely today on uh, a book uh, called The Gift of Fear that was written by an author named Gavin De Becker. Uh, and Gavin DeBecker is a pretty interesting character. He is the uh, designer of the Mosaic Threat Assessment Systems, uh, which have been used to screen threats to the justices of the Supreme Court, uh, members of Congress, uh, senior officials of the CIA even. Uh, along with the United States Marshal Service, he co-designed the Mosaic Threat Assessment Systems, uh, which are currently used for assessing all threats to federal judges and prosecutors. Uh, he has been on the President's Advisory Board at the United States Department of Justice. Um, so he's got a lot of really uh, interesting experience in assessing threats and determining dangerous situations, how to suss them out and how to, uh, you know, uh, kind of read the situation and see uh, what is dangerous and what is not. Uh, of course, he's been all over the place in the media, Oprah Winfrey, 60 Minutes, Larry King, all of that. And unfortunately, we don't have Mr. Becker on as a guest today. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> that would be pretty wild. But we are uh, we are going to be discussing his book uh, and topics around that. Um, so we have some clips from uh, interviews and from a lecture that he did um, that we're going to play today. So we're just going to start with one of those uh, that was pretty interesting uh, about a, a mother-daughter uh, movie night. So why don't, why don't we start with that clip, and then we'll, we'll discuss afterwards. Okay. I want to tell you a fast story uh, that's not in a book you would have read, involving a woman I interviewed named uh, Kate. And she and her uh, daughter uh, used to go to movies with a group of other mothers every week. And they would uh, uh, go usually at dusk, so that by the time they came out of the theater, it was dark. And they'd go in vans together or cars together or what have you. But on this particular movie, which was Jurassic Park, uh, the, uh, uh, the mother took her daughter to uh, see the film, and she parked far away from the theater because she had some shopping to do. She took stuff back to her car, and then she walked over to the theater. And in line at the theater, she was with all of her friends and with all of their daughters, and there was a man behind her who, for no reason that she could explain to you or me, made her uncomfortable. He was wearing a T-shirt, and, uh, and the T-shirt said, Afraid of the Dark, on it. And he was wearing gym pants, and uh, something about him gave her the creeps. 
And sure enough, as they were standing in line, he spoke to her. And he said, looking at all of the women and all of their daughters, he said, ladies' night out? And she sort of said, uh-huh. She didn't want to engage with him. That's the end of the story in terms of everything that she had to react to involving that man. They then saw the movie uh, about uh, you know, Jurassic Park, about ancient predators, and, uh, and they came out of the movie, and one of the friends said to the mother, do you want to ride to your car? And she said, no, no, we're fine, we'll walk. And the moment she said that and saw the other mothers leave, she was upset. She realized she'd made a mistake, and she was thinking about that man. He wasn't even in the theater anymore, but that was on her mind as she and her daughter walked back the two blocks to her car. And so they walked down the street, and she could not shake the feeling of that guy in line. Now, we don't know today whether she saw him again out of the corner of her eye. We don't know what it is that pushed the, the intuitive button in her. But she began to walk faster and faster. And her daughter, who was eight years old, said, is it a race? And she said, yes, and thought this will be a good idea. We'll run. And just as she began to run, she turned around, and sure enough, that man was following them, the man with the T-shirt that said, afraid of the dark. And she realized as they were running, they would not be able to outrun him. Uh, and she would have to get to the car and act very quickly. And she made the decision that she would get to the car. She would unlock the car on her daughter's side, put her daughter in, and then walk around to the other side. And she did all of that. She unlocked the car, and she walked around to the other side. But before she got into the car, the man was already upon her. And so she got herself into the seat of the car, and she just watched. And she said to me later, I could see that my legs were kicking so much that he wouldn't be able to get hold of me. Basically, he had a position of disadvantage. And she said, I thought to myself, car key, car key, car key. She said, the next thing I realized, I kind of uh, came back to consciousness in the car because the car door was slamming. And all the things that I told myself to do, start the car, drive away fast, I had done them. And she said, when I thought about the car key, I thought, well, I could put this in his eye. I could stick him in the eye with this key. And that would settle this problem very quickly. And she said, that is when I realized I had already done it. She had already stuck him in the eye with the car key. He was already sitting on the curb doing what men do when you stick them in the eye with a car key. And she had already driven away, and the car door had already slammed. All of these things had happened without her conscious participation. The only part that was conscious to her was the impulse that she got that said car key. And she said that she felt terrible and, and wouldn't want to blind somebody. And she said, at least I didn't, you know, I could have stuck him in both eyes. At least I didn't do that. Turns out she had stuck him in both eyes and didn't even know it. And uh, the, the next thing she heard was her daughter saying, uh, Mom, you didn't put your seatbelt on. So her daughter was pretty much insulated from the drama of the experience. And, and she said to me uh, later on that uh, she said it was, a, uh, it was a terrible thing to do. Uh, you know, I felt like it was natural that I was part of nature. And I said, well, sure. You know, he did something very stupid. He attacked a woman who was with her young daughter. What do we all know about animals? You know, you can walk past the elephants, but not if the bull, if the cow rather is between, you know, the calf is nearby. Or you can agitate the bear a little bit, but you sure can't agitate the mother bear who's with her cubs. And so he did a, basically a dumb thing and, and had the consequence for it. Later she explained to me that she knew that he didn't have a gun. I said, why did you, why, why did you know that? And uh, she said because he was wearing a tight shirt, because he was wearing gym, short, gym pants that wouldn't be strong enough at the belt to provide a gun, and because of what he did. 
If he'd had a gun, he might have just pointed a gun at me to get into the car or to get access to me, but he didn't do any of that. He did this other full-style attack that didn't work well for him. And so whether she's right or wrong about whether he had a gun, whether she's right or wrong about any of her assessments that come now after the fact, all of the work was done by intuition in an instant. And that resource, what I really hope you're left with today, is that that resource is absolutely brilliant, and it's our nuclear defense system if we listen to it. That's a pretty good example. Yeah. So we we all have intuition. I guess we're all born with the ability to listen to our gut feelings. Some of us listen to our gut feelings more than others. Some of us deny our gut feelings or try to rationalize away like certain dangerous situations or feelings that we have about people. We might not know exactly what is wrong with someone, but it's something that we can't quite put our fingers on. But I think that most of us have felt that at some point in our lives and whether we listen to it or not is the interesting part. Yeah. What's interesting in this book is is he gives a good definition of, of intuition because a lot of us, you know, we kind of know what it is, but we may not know that the root word of intuition is inter, which basically means, you know, that, uh, that guard, it means to guard or protect against. So it's knowing something without knowing why. And he uses a good analogy of like journeying from A to Z without stopping at all the letters along the way, coming to a conclusion click- quickly without taking the time to assess what's going on. So like the mom, yeah. you know, intuitively knew probably before the movie even started. Mm-hmm. It started to kick in. Yeah, like right yeah. when she saw the guy standing in line. Einstein had another definition, too. He said that intuition is a feeling for the order lying behind the appearance of something. So it's just a feeling. Hmm. Yeah. I found it really interesting that he said in the book that everybody has this. You know, because I know like myself, I've, all, I've always considered myself to be not very intuitive. And I had always kind of thought that it was just kind of this innate ability that some people had, some people didn't. But uh, he says that, you know, everybody has this. Uh, it's just that, like you were saying, uh, Tiff, there's, there's like our denial kind of gets in the way. So it's kind of like we have these sort of intuitions, these moments where we kind of know something and we don't know why we know it. And maybe it's because of that and we're kind of taught to be more logical in our thought processes that we don't accept it. You know, we kind of brush it aside and go, no, 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 this, that's not logical. That doesn't make any sense. So it, it kind of, for me anyway, kind of like offers almost like an, an inroad to exploring intuition. The idea that, oh, no, wait, I do have it. I just um, am obviously overriding it too much. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And he talks about how I- logic is, is super faulty and slow to accept reality and you're burdened by judgment and that in when you try and use logic you spend valuable time thinking about could should would maybe and in nature Mm -hmm. uh, animals don't do that they don't spend any time on that no No. (laughs) yeah the thing i struggle with with this is the uh the make nice program 
and uh, I, I have that pretty mm-hmm. bad. And if anybody else who struggles with that, where you just want to be nice, you know, you just want everything to be cool. Um, and the the problem, of course, is where you know uh, I will get into that kind of logic loop, thinking, you know, somebody might be dangerous. Well, I'm I'm judging them. I sh- I shouldn't judge this person. I shouldn't come to you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, conclusions about them with no, without knowing, uh, you know, and that certainly it's not black and white. That makes sense in some situations, mm-hmm. but in situations where uh, danger could be afoot, uh, you you don't want to get sucked into that, uh, and that can certainly block the intuitive feeling. It's like I was driving with um, my girlfriend, and there was this guy who was hitchhiking, and <clears throat> he was wearing all black, and he had kind of a ratty backpack on. Uh, and he looked, you know, kind of scruffy and, uh, the, where I live, like we don't really have any homeless people cause it's too cold here. So he wasn't necessarily hmm. a homeless guy. He was just a hitchhiker. And I was like, Hey, we should pick this guy up. And she was like, Nope, that guy's a creep. Keep driving. <laughs> and we got into a little thing where it was like, you just totally judge that guy. Like, why are you being a dick? You know? And, uh, <clears throat> and, but you know, She's not. Uh, she's a very nice person. Uh, so I think that maybe that was that intuitive feeling, um, you know, where where I got into the logic loop and she was just like, no, nope, we're not picking that guy up. And who knows, you know, had we picked him up, maybe he, he would have been violent. I, I have no idea. Um, but I think that yeah. uh, in those situations, it's, it's better to err on the side of your gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're so discouraged to do that. And it's it's just like you're talking about, Jonathan. Like there is this kind of this kind of stigma that don't prejudge anybody, don't judge a book by its cover, you know, don't you have to give everybody the opportunity. You can't, you know, your your first um you know, your first impression um isn't necessarily the right one and there's all kinds of flaws that can come in, but uh but yeah, I, I think that uh I know that Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink was very um uh popular for a while there and a lot of people were kind of um, putting more credence on their kind of first, what he called their first blink of a situation where, where you know, it's kind of the very first information that comes to you, not through logic or anything else, it's just there. Like you just have this this feeling or intuition or whatever you want to call it. So I, th- I think our society would have done a, a great service by kind of giving more credence to that mm-hmm. and not um, not this idea of, of um, you know, allowing... Uh, or, or having to allow more information to come in first that, you know, it's not necessarily right. Like your first intuition isn't necessarily going to be the right one, but to at least take it on board. Yeah. Right. And just think to yourself, well, this warrants further observation. But, yeah. um, um, Gavin DeBecker says that intuition is always right. It's your interpretation which may be wrong. Like all of us have doubts, hunts, hunches, uh, suspicion, curiosity about things, nagging thoughts. You might hesitate a little bit and you really need to pay attention to that kind of thing. It doesn't mean that every person you come across and you think twice about is going to turn out to be some crazed mad killer or anything, but you should still pay attention and just take it on board and say that, you know, I need to, you know, keep my guard up, observe this person and see. I think that the predators out there in the world know that there are normal people out there that they prey on. I mean, 
there's predators and prey, mm-hmm. and they take advantage of that. They know that people don't want to pass judgment and people want to be nice, so they don't want to come off as rude or judgmental, and they take advantage of that. So they know, mm-hmm. so we should know. <laughs> Yeah, he was saying, too, that niceness is actually a strategy and not a human trait, like being tall or having brown hair and blue Mm -hmm. eyes or whatever. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's just a a social convention. It doesn't mean anything, you know, regarding your personality. It's something you can turn on and turn off very easily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but it sucks people in. You yeah. know, if some, you know, it's like, it's like one of those things that can override that gut feeling mm-hmm. that, you know, you have this gut feeling of, of, of somebody, even though they're being very nice and your logic says, oh, no, no, they're being very nice. You know, they're just trying to be helpful. Look, they're, they're smiling. <laughs> they can't be out to harm me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of our chatters actually said, um, what, uh, what was found in Blink, um, that those who had correct a correct blink about something were those who had good knowledge a good knowledge base about the subject before being blinked. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's very interesting too. That um, you know all this uh, in- intuition maybe is dependent upon past experience, past knowledge, things you already know about a situation. Uh, Gavin De Becker talks about how sometimes knowledge can actually get in the way, and if a person is very familiar with a situation, they might not be expecting the unexpected. They might be uh, kind of very just stuck in routine and, and won't necessarily notice uh, new information when it's coming in. But um, nonetheless, I think that uh, that, that your intuition um, is probably informed um, just through your life experience mm-hmm. and, uh, and what knowledge you have. Totally. Well, right, do, you, do you guys have, have you had any uh, experiences that were similar to that uh, story i mean i i can't say i've ever been in a in a in a fight for my life like that story that gavin de becker told that was pretty terrifying um i don't know have you guys ever had anything like that where you you realize afterwards what you did yeah i think i haven't i may or may not have told this story before but i was nine years old and there was this old abandoned brick grocery store on the corner of my block and I was on my bike and I was just leaning up against the bike I don't know thinking kid thoughts or whatever and uh, out of the corner of my eye I could see a car approaching me very slowly with the door open and there were these men in there and immediately without thinking the car didn't even like get like up to where it was beside me I just jumped off my bike and just ran. I don't know why I chose not to just pedal off on my bike. Maybe I thought it would take too long, but my immediate action was to just take off running. And I ran like a few houses down, ran back behind the house. And I just kind of like, you know, felt myself freaking out. Like my legs got all wobbly. My heart was just racing. It was just absolute fear. Because part of me knew, like, why is this car pulling up on me so slow, not making any noise? Why are these men Mm. in the car? Why is the door open when the car is moving? I don't know what would have happened. It probably would not have been anything for my benefit, that's for sure. 
But uh, by the time I calmed mm-hmm. down and came out and, like, peeked around, nobody was out there. So I just went in the house. <laughs> but, um, yeah, mm-hmm. that was probably one of the first times I remember having, like, that extreme fear response. Like an instinct, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. I mean, being young, and, and so it's part of your makeup, mm-hmm. survival. Mm-hmm. But what uh, I can't say is I've ever had an experience like that. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably, unfortunately, I think it's probably more common for women to run into issues like this. Um, just, just the nature of our society, unfortunately. But I can't remember having any kind of situation where it would, ju- you know, where, where something else just took over, where mm-hmm. I, I was just um, kind of in escape mode or fight mode or, or anything like that. Yeah, the closest feeling I have to that is, and this might be kind of silly, but when I was a kid, the house I grew up in, we had kind of a scary basement. Mm -hmm. And whenever I was down, it wasn't like, you know, dirty or anything. It was just scary for some reason. And and I would Mm -hmm. be down, I used to, uh, had a piece of plywood on the wall and I would shoot hockey pucks at it because I played hockey when I was a kid. So I would be down there doing that. And um, all of a sudden I get this feeling like hair stand on it and I would run up the stairs and like turn the light off when I got to the top of the stairs. And it was a regular thing. Like sometimes I'd be walking up the stairs and all of a sudden I'd get this feeling and I would just run up to the top of the stairs. So that like, that's what I associate that, that feeling of fear is with basements, I guess. (laughs) Well, actually I have another one I just thought of and maybe I was like 11 or 12 or something. We had a school right across from our house and I was, over there in the field, I don't know what I was doing, and these two boys, they were around my age, came up to me and started talking. And I don't know what they said. I can't remember at this point, but one of them just, like, started attacking me and (laughs) and hitting me. Hmm. And I fought both of them off. I remember I flipped one of the boys over my back, (laughs) and I just took off running back in the house. (laughs) Like, why would they do that to me? That's what I was thinking, like, the whole day after that. Like, why did they do that? And then, secondly, I thought, wow, I can't believe you beat those boys up. But the thing you you said, um, Doug, about the nature of our society, like, if you think about it, women have been victimized since the beginning of time, like, raped, murdered. It's like... Like, we're the perpetual victims. I don't know if that whole thing about women's intuition is like some kind of genetic memory passed down through women or something. But it seems like women Mm. kind of have stronger hunches about things. But considering what women have to go through, like, I had this guy, like, make fun of me because... Uh, I left the light on in the house if I knew I was going to be coming home after dark or I left the front porch light on. Like, why do you leave that on? You're just wasting electricity. Like, you have no idea the the no. danger that women can be in in this society. We've been haunted and stalked and killed and raped and, you know, domestic violence, like, all throughout time. I don't think men really get a lot of times what women have to go through and what they have to be afraid of a lot of the times that men don't even think yeah, about. I think that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that. 
Well, Gavin De Becker had a really good story at the beginning of the book, The Gift of Fear, about this woman named Kelly. And she was walking back home from the grocery store with grocery bags in her hands. And she went up to her building, and I think she just went right in. She said, thinking to herself, like, damn it, you know, people in the people yeah. left the door unlocked. And when she went in there, she saw that there was this guy there, and he didn't live there. So that was like the first intuition she knew that something was wrong. So she started going up the steps, and I think she dropped one of the bags, and the jar, uh, like the can of cat food rolled down the steps, and she heard the guy say, oh, I got it. And he said, I'll bring it up. And right away she was thinking, like, who is this guy? And then she said to him, no, I got it. That's okay. And he said, no, that's okay. We've got a hungry cat up there. we got to feed him. So he came up, and he was, like, trying to get the bags from her. And she was saying, no, no, I'm okay. I got it. And he kept insisting. And so uh, he actually got into her apartment with her, and he ended up raping her. And um, she was in the bed, and he got up and he said, um, I'm going to go and get something to drink, and I'll leave you alone, I promise. And then he closed the window, and right at that moment, she said she experienced what was true fear, and everything just became clear to her. So as he walked out of the bedroom and went to the kitchen. She got up and followed right behind him, wrapped the sheet around her, followed right behind him, didn't say anything, didn't make any noise. And he went off into the kitchen, and she walked right out of her front door and walked across the hall, and she knew that her neighbor's door would be unlocked, and she just went in there and you know, told them to be quiet, and that's how it ended. But she said that she knew that this guy was going to come back and kill her because she could hear him rifling around in the kitchen drawers and she suspected that he was looking for a knife and it turns out later he had done the same thing yeah he killed other women raped and then killed them afterwards that's kind of how he starts the book and it's it really is shocking because especially as a woman you can sense how all sort of logic was thrown out the window and she just got up and walked out and and that's what saved her life Mm mm-hmm but the thing is that she, when she went back and recalled the story, she noticed all of these red flags that she didn't act on right from the beginning. Yeah, what was yeah. what was some of the terminology that he used? Um, this was especially in particular with women, like the fact that... Uh, when women say no, it needs to be a complete sentence. Mm-hmm. But for men, it comes as like an opportunity for conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, mm. a lot of what his book talks about is that he wants women in particular to know that the niceness program is not in your benefit <laughs> and that no is all you need to say mm-hmm. and that we need to teach boys that too. Yeah. Because it seems like a woman is expected to respond to any kind of communication from a man. Like if she's just walking down the street and some guy starts talking to her, it's expected that she's going to engage in conversation with him. Like, And if you Mm -hmm. don't, then you're perceived as this cold, hard bitch and, you know. Yeah, so one of the terms was forced teaming, right? Mm -hmm. That was uh, 
you know, we we've got a hungry cat. So so he puts it like that they're on this personal basis mm-hmm. already. So all these little small signs that she read right away when she kept saying no, no, and he wasn't taking no for an answer. Yeah, the force teaming, um, they use the word we, they try to make it seem like you're in the same boat or on the same team, and it's a way for them to establish rapport with you. But you should always be thinking, like, why is this person trying to get on my good side, and what do they want to know from me? Yeah, or or too yeah, many details. Funny. Yeah, like people people who want to deceive you will also use the simple technique that has a simple name, too many details. Mm. So like the man started to talk about his cat and how, it, you know, it was left at a friend's apartment unfed and... Yeah, just, too much information. And she didn't ask for it, and it's unnecessary, and it doesn't make any, it's not relevant to the situation. And basically, when people use that technique, they're really just trying to distract you with all this information so you can't pick out what is really going on in that situation. And that is that a stranger is yeah. trying to make moves on you. Well, it was interesting that he said that, that somebody who's lying tends to give to divulge too much information because mm-hmm. they know that they're lying. So they, they try and, 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 you know, talk around the lie. Whereas, uh, you know, and, uh, the person that they're talking to doesn't necessarily know that they're lying, but that's actually a red flag mm-hmm. that they're giving away too many details. Yeah. Those are some of the, yeah. uh, what he calls, uh, pins, pre-incident indicators. So the force force teaming is one. Uh, too many details. Uh, charm and niceness. Um, yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> yeah. About charm. Uh, Typecasting. Uh, so uh, an insult uh, used to get a chosen victim who would otherwise ignore that person to engage in some kind of conversation. For example, I bet you're too stuck up to talk to a guy like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I've heard that one a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It kind of puts the, the onus on the person to, like, it's kind of like, wait a minute, I'm not stuck up, therefore I am going to talk to you. I'll mm-hmm. show you. Like, yeah, it's, right. it's, it's, a, it's a very kind of easy way of, of, of kind of uh, forcing black and white thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, in that particular case, um, the guy used it, he, he, when he was trying to, to take the bag from her to help her with the bag, he said, there is such a thing as being too proud, you know. Mm-hmm. And then she ended up letting go of the bag. It's like, you know, he's, he, he's basically labeling what she's doing as because she's too proud and she had to prove otherwise. So it's kind of like just an automatic um, behavior um, that can be triggered. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these other ones, uh, loan sharking. So giving unsolicited help uh, to the chosen victim and anticipating that they'll feel obliged uh, to reciprocate somehow. Yeah, like if she um, let him help her with her bags and there's... She would feel bad about refusing another request of his because he did that for her. Being in debt to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then the uh, there was mm-hmm. the unsolicited promise, too, which uh, I think was, you know, from that story at the beginning of the book, um, a promise to do or not do something when no such promise has been asked for. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I promise I won't hurt you or I promise I'll leave you alone usually means the opposite in that kind of situation. Yeah, and you should be thinking to yourself, why is this person trying to convince me of something? And the answer is because Mm -hmm. he can see that you're not convinced, so that's why he's doing it. So why is he trying to convince you to do anything? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think it, well, one of the interesting things I thought about that. Oh, sorry. I was no, just go going to say, I thought that one of the interesting things about that story was that um, when uh, uh, Gavin Becker was uh, was interviewing her afterwards, she said that when the guy got up from the bed, she said, I knew he was going to kill me. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, how did you know that he was going to kill you? And she's like, I don't know. And then she thought for a second and she's like, oh, because he closed the window. Because mm-hmm. there was no re- he had already he had already finished. So there was no reason for him to, to close the window, except that he didn't want noise to escape and um, and alert people that there was something going on, some kind of struggle. So that kind of was what tipped off her intuition that she knew she had to get out of there right away. But she wasn't conscious of it. And the thing is that he said, like, the the first three, uh, too many details, typecasting, loan sharking, some guys who aren't very well-versed in dating or interacting with women <laughs> might employ those kind of things just to get a woman to talk with them and maybe get a date. doesn't necessarily mean that they're a predator, but you should always keep those things in mind, even if somebody does that to you. I mean, just make sure you make note of it. I mean, you might not want to go out with that person just because they're just stupid. (laughs) But uh, it doesn't necessarily mean they're always out to kill you. (laughs) But uh, the most important one of these pins is uh, discounting the word no. And he said this is probably the most, the biggest one that you should pay attention to. Like we said before, like no should never be negotiable. It should be a complete sentence. Mm -hmm. And the person who doesn't hear you say no, they're trying to control you. Like, it's different if you're, like, in a store Mm -hmm. and somebody says, hey, do you want some help? Do you want to buy this and you want to look at this thing? And they don't listen to you say no. But, like, in interpersonal interactions with somebody, if somebody doesn't listen to you when you say no, you immediately have to think that this person is trying to control me. Mm. And it's creepy yeah well this may be a good time to uh you guys want to go to that clip uh one of our other clips is from gavin becker about why he wrote the book uh the gift of fear Mm -hmm. what are we going to do what would you have our society do about all the others who haven't come to the conclusion you've come to well the damn thing off in the most personal sense, the, the, the most contribution I've been able to make is to write a book that says here is what risk really looks like. You do need this information. There are risks in the world. There are people who act out violently. What does it look like? Here's what predatory crime really looks like. Uh, if I could give a single gift to American women, it would be to lift from them the idea that they are required to be polite that they are required to engage in conversations with strangers, that uh, someone who offers them help is a good person or a nice man. I talk a lot in the book about the words nice and charming. Charm is a verb. It's not an adjective. A person doesn't have charm. They use charm to compel by allure. So a single gift that I could give and that I try to is to teach young women. I would have a high school class, to answer your question very directly, that teaches young men to hear the word no, and teaches young women that it's all right to speak it explicitly. You know, when you and I say no, it's the end of a discussion. When a woman says no, it's the beginning of a negotiation. 
I say, would you like to go out with me? No, I'd really rather not. Oh, come on. You know, I, I'm just, I just mean, how about just lunch? And it's a discussion. And we could work on that a great deal so that women wouldn't find themselves denying true hesitation signals and fear signals. Look at this fact. A woman gets into an elevator late at night. Elevator arrives. Door opens up. There's a guy inside she's afraid of. For a hundred political reasons, she says, I feel fear of this guy, but... I don't want to be that kind of person, and just because he's not dressed well, and I don't want to let the door close in his face. And so she gets into a steel, soundproofed chamber with someone she's afraid of. Now, there isn't an animal in nature that would even consider that, would even have that thought process. And women in America do it because of this culture that says you're really not allowed to rebuff explicit, you know, explicitly. You're not allowed to be rude. The cost of being rude might be death. You might be killed for that because you don't want to make a man angry, because if you're angry, he may kill you. That's the thing I would change most of all, a high school class. I mean, that's the practical answer that I'm talking about. And, and the concepts in the book are, you know, is my small way of, of contributing to all of that and to reduce unwarranted fear. Would you do anything about the media that increase unwarranted fear in your estimation? I believe it's really the market, you know. I mean, if we're going to watch this stuff, I think it's the consumer, which is why I don't think it's a small thing that I've stopped watching the local news. It's the consumer that controls all of this. There was an illusion that news was a public service. News, television news, is a business, period. It's not any different than selling you know, uh, uh, toothpaste, or in fact, it's tied to selling toothpaste. And, uh, but I grew up believing that it was good, decent people making a contribution to keep us informed. And maybe it was, I don't know. But now, now, it's a whole different animal. So what I would do about it, I don't think there's anything to do except turn it off. I don't think there's any, anything to do except uh, exercise the power of the marketplace. So that's pretty interesting and uh, certainly a good impulse on his part to, uh, you know, to share this information with the, the world. I know that, um, I took an Aikido class a couple of years back and uh, that was one of the main focuses of the of the class was women's defense and uh, our teacher was very conscious about that and we always had a, a segment of the class that was about real life situations you know if a guy puts his hand on you and uh, like in a bar or something like what can you do and how can you you know assert your independence and um, basically like a physical affirmation of the no uh, which is unfortunate that that even has to be a thing, but it does. Well, maybe we should talk yeah. a little bit about what he says about true fear yeah. versus unwarranted fear and anxiety or worry. Mm. Mm. What about well, should, we go- <laughs> should, we, should we intro by playing that, uh, that clip, the, the definition of fear? Sure. In his intriguing new book, my guest refers to the famous line from Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first inaugural address, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But I would first ask Gavin De Becker whether what FDR said further doesn't best illumine his and the president's thesis. As Roosevelt said, so first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning unjustified terror 
which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Isn't that addition more of what you're saying, Mr. Becker? Absolutely. That, that uh, it's absolutely correct. And in fact, I amend his quote slightly to say that uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself when there is a reason for fear. And, uh, you know, I, I'm asked all the time, what should we be afraid of? And I say, well, it's not a choice what you're afraid of. It's not a decision you make. True fear comes in here, you know, and it takes over this animal, and it causes all these physical responses. Our vision becomes more focused, lactic acid pumped into the muscles. A chemical called cortisol is released into the bloodstream, which prepares you for fighting because it causes blood to coagulate if you're cut. I mean, all these extraordinary things happen with true fear. That other thing, you know, that uh, unwarranted fear, the voluntary fear, like worrying, that's what Roosevelt's really talking about, and I agree with him 100%. That fear will kill more Americans this year than violence will. How? Heart disease, stress-related disorders, high blood pressure, depression, suicide, defensive acts of violence when there wasn't a need for them. And, uh, you know, the fear that we get in this culture that really centers this culture, uh, I would say the overwhelming majority of it is unwarranted. Unwarranted? Right. No do you cause think, for it. Do you think that your book, The Gift of Fear, in any way adds to that uh, unwarranted fear in the public at large? Well, not for readers. I mean, certainly when people pass it in a bookstore and it has the big, you know, word fear on there. Of course, gift is this big and fear is this big. Uh, but uh, people who read it come away with much less fear. I mean, if, if the hundreds of letters and all the responses that I've gotten are any indication, people feel informed about what risk really looks like so that it's not this, this monster, this uh, faceless, as, as Roosevelt said, it's not this demon that we imagine, but it's the real thing. What is it really? So uh, I, I certainly hope it doesn't contribute because the message of the book is, uh, here's where fear has a role, here's where it's a gift, and here's where it's a curse, and here's how to tell the difference, which is the real key issue. Well, if a little paranoia is a healthy thing to uh, have, what's your definition of appropriate fear? Well, appropriate fear is a brief signal that is in the presence of danger. It's based on something you perceive about your environment or your circumstance. That's all. I just said the whole definition, a brief signal in the presence of danger. Now, unwarranted fear, that's got a much longer definition. That's uh, anxiety and worry. And the way to, to tell the difference pretty quickly is that if true fear is based on your perception, something you perceive in your environment or your circumstance, then unwarranted fear is always something from your memory or your imagination. And here's a practical example. Most of us have had that experience of going to the airport and you think, I shouldn't get on this plane. I should cancel this flight. And I ask the, the person who experiences that fear, is that based on a news story you saw three weeks ago of an air crash? Or is that based on seeing the pilot stumble out of the bar at the airport? One of them would be in your environment, something you perceive. I'd take another flight. But if it's based on something in your imagination or your memory, it's not relevant to your safety. So it seems like a big part of this is being able to hone that ability, uh, you know, to tell the difference in the moment. Um, and, it, you know, it sounds like cultivating your sense of intuition and understanding the triggers and some of those, the pins, the pre-ended 
pre-incident indicators um, and how you mm-hmm. react to them at a gut level can actually overall reduce your uh, sense of unwarranted fear. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you are more in tune with your intuition, you will have less uh, occurrences of the, um, you know, just the ambient anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. yeah situational it's, it's, awareness. It, is, it does seem like kind of a tricky, um, it, seem, it seems like a bit of a, of a tricky, tricky thing. Because, I mean, we've talked about before, you know, the idea that, that somebody may have had an incident in their past or something like that of, you know, a guy with a red hat, you know, did something, traumatized them in some way. And then all of a sudden you see somebody in a red hat and you get triggered. And it's like all of a sudden you have this kind of sense of anxiety. And I think navigating that and actually being able to tell whether or not there is, in fact, an actual threat there is part of what this book is all about. Um, you know, looking at, uh, you know, may- maybe bringing some of these unconscious things to consciousness and being a little bit more aware of where these impulses are actually coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all have worries or anxieties or people say like one of the the number one fears is uh, a fear of public speaking that's not really a true fear that's an anxiety and a worry and it's based on what you imagine might happen Um, but true fear is something else entirely it's completely uh, dependent on the situation you actually have to be in the presence of some real danger and that's when things become clear and you know exactly what to do. Like worrying, like, you know, what's going to happen at work or my boss is mad at me and what if this happens and what if that happens? It's kind of not the same thing. And, yeah, a good part of this book is, you know, sussing all of that out and figuring out what is real and what what's a real fear and what's just a worry. But it makes me think, too, I mean, there's so often that uh, we don't have this confirmed for us, um, which is probably fortunate. Uh, but also, you know, it's uh, I think it's it's unfortunate that you have to have some kind of uh, experience with these situations to to hone that feeling even more. Um, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but I don't know. Like what comes to mind for me, the, the last time I experienced this kind of thing was in the woods. I was hiking down a trail. All of a sudden, hair standing on end, uh, I could feel something around, and it, it seemed very weird, like out of nowhere, and I was getting really creeped out. Uh, and sure enough, I rounded the corner, and there was a fresh uh, deer kill. that This deer had been killed mm-hmm. and just apart and was spread out over the trail. And so, you know, it was either a, a, a cat or a wolf or something that had done that or perhaps some coyotes. But I knew that there was something like in my immediate vicinity and that was confirmed for me. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, I'm out of here, mm-hmm. you know. But I think in a in yeah. a day-to-day situation, like when you're in the city or something like that, um, it doesn't happen very often where you have that sense and then it's confirmed mm-hmm. um, because, you know, uh, I was fortunate in that situation, but it, when you're dealing with people, uh, you know, it, it, to have that sensation confirmed, you you have to get into some kind of confrontation with that person who's who's causing you a, a threat. Um, so it is. It's it's tricky to navigate. I think it's something that's hard to uh, learn about, and that's perhaps why Gavin DeBecker says, you know, hone that sense of watch for these triggers and just get out. You know. Um, because you you don't want to get into that situation and you're you know 
essentially who cares if you're seen as being, you know, rude or, uh, flighty or whatever, mm-hmm. like you, it, it, the chances are you're avoiding a dangerous situation. So just go with your gut on it. It looks like we have a caller. So I'm going to go ahead and take this call. Cool. Hello, caller. Are you there? Yes. Hello. Hello. What's your name? Hi. Hello. <laughs> My name is Joe. Hi, Joe. Hey, Joe. Uh, it's an interesting discussion you guys are having. Um, and just talking about the last recording, you and kind of what uh, Jonathan <clears throat> saying, and just about the last recording that you played, you know, that guy kind of broke it down into um, <clears throat> stuff that's in your environment, you know, the drunk pilot. You can see there's a drunk pilot. Obviously, there's a, you should be afraid or whatever, or should be concerned. Uh, but if it's just some feeling or something, um, you know, a memory or something that's causing you to be that way, then kind of dismiss it, you know. But kind of, I think kind of what you guys were talking about or or, or getting to was the idea of um, there being a kind of third option there Mm -hmm. um, where um, it's not something necessarily, you know, it's almost like the descriptions he gave. You're you're kind of almost like a passive uh, participant in in the detection of threats or danger in your environment. You know, one is something you absorbed, you know, by reading the newspaper. You know, a story about a flight plane crashing or something. So you absorb that, and then it comes back when you're out there, when you're at the airport. And the other one is. Um, Okay, I suppose you're not passive with taking action with the pilot, but again, you're kind of um, uh, it's information that's just kind of coming to you directly, you know. So you're and you're acting directly on it. But um, there's a, a, the kind of third option, and like you're saying, it's kind of difficult to, to tease out. The third option seems to be one where you've um, where you paid a lot of attention to uh, I don't know life in general, or say for example, you've You've learned a lot about um, human personality types, um, and you know different uh, character types, and different even even the way that can influence you know can produce a physical uh, type of uh, a physical physical characteristics in a person or something like that. You know, that's just one example, but you can expand that out to 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 lots of different things. Um, and I suppose what I'm getting at here is the more you know. The more you're aware of things, uh, the, the greater chance you have of um, protecting yourself from threats. Um, because, of course, there's a lot of times where something bad will happen to you and you can say neither of the two things. Uh, that that guy in the, in the last uh, recording cited, uh, you something something bad happens to you where you're you're injured or you're traumatized or whatever in some way uh and it was neither a memory you didn't get any memory you didn't have any uh fear reaction uh before the thing happened to you there was nothing in your memory there was nothing making you afraid no signals from that and there was no signals from the environment but still something bad happened to you Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so Clearly, there's. I suppose what that what that says is that clearly there was something that you didn't know, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if something bad still happens to you, there's something you don't know. So I mean, 
I suppose my point is that the more that you um, study and learn about the world, because you're talking here about threats in life, threats that come to you from life, from uh, the environment itself, from animals, from other people. I don't know what else is there, space aliens or something, or uh, I don't know. That kind of thing. Of course, you know, there's, I don't know. So it's, it's a difficult thing. If, you, if the goal is to kind of um, stop you uh, to, uh, uh, as much as possible, avoid threats and avoid injury and avoid trauma and stuff, well, then it seems that you've got to learn as much about life and reality as possible, including other people, like I was saying, their nature, mm-hmm. like what makes people tick, uh, what the hidden motivations that uh, a lot of people have, why people do certain things. Um, mm-hmm. And that's probably the most complicated one. To to protect yourself against mm-hmm. against uh, bad things happening to you. Yeah, well, if you yeah. hadn't, um, if you know, if, if you hadn't studied, say, for instance, the character traits of predators, um, right. and you didn't know, you know, that that predators employ niceness and charm, and mm-hmm. you come across a situation like that, and they're being nice and charming, you're like, well, this person is just being very nice, and so I'm going to reciprocate. Mm-hmm. But if you have that knowledge that, you know, there's a possibility that this person is a predator and there's signs that I can watch for, even if you've never been in that situation before, but you've studied it, you have Mm -hmm. a little edge. Right. Yeah. Well, that's why it goes back to what we were talking about before with uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, um, Blink. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of our chatters had said that um, one of one of the conclusions of Blink is that the people who actually were most successful at having those kind of intuitions and being right about them were the people mm-hmm. who had a good working knowledge base um, mm-hmm. against the subject. So it's people right. who were informed. So it's also like it's almost like we have this intuitive ability, but that intuitive ability needs information. It needs right, knowledge absolutely. in order to be yeah, able absolutely. to function prob- properly. In, f- in fact, maybe intu- intuition is, is just that, is um, uh, a kind of stockpile or a, a database, a large database of information on many, many different things mm-hmm. in a person's mind. Obviously, mm-hmm. that they don't have conscious recall of all the time, but that is available to to be brought to conscious awareness in specific situations. You know that that come about quite rarely, but just in that moment, a person will say, you know, it's in the same way that you're absorbing information all the time. Human beings are absorbing tons and tons of data, and very little of it uh, really is is thought about consciously. You know. Um, in the same way, that information that is stored at some in the unconscious, let's say, can be automatically dumped back out into conscious memory mm-hmm. or conscious awareness um, in, at a given moment on in response to a signal from the environment that is really being picked up by the unconscious and is being registered mm-hmm. and being linked with that unconscious data that was absorbed, you know, um, but I think for data to be to be, um, I mean, I'm t- here. I'm talking about. Uh, I mean, you read a book. Can any of you guys like uh, tell me word for word, uh, uh, or recite uh, word for word a book that you read a year ago or even a week ago? Uh, <laughs> Absolutely in cases, not. <laughs> in some case, you could. If it was a year ago, you'd probably be able to give me a paragraph. Mm-hmm. Of a 300-page of book, and in terms of explanation of it, but still, you read all that information. And I'm pretty sure that's stored in your brain somewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's 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 like that information when it matches something that is also maybe being observed in some way, like unconsciously in the moment by 
by your unconscious mind, let's say that it, it matches up with something you've learned or something you've read or something that's stored just beyond conscious awareness, and it can be it can be triggered out or, or pushed out immediately into conscious awareness. And in that situation, uh, it's like that would come out as just a feeling maybe or just a intuition or I don't really have anything to base mm. this on because you're not consciously aware of it, but some part of you is consciously uh, mm-hmm. unconsciously aware of it let's say and that's the one that's speaking it, it's kind of like gets back to it's, the, it's it's linked to that idea that uh, uh i think you guys have probably talked about in, in other shows about the the it's it's in the book um thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman mm-hmm. i think uh mm-hmm. where he talks about that those two levels system one and system two you know uh that that there is a a big part of our, our, our minds and and how we operate and how we look and see reality that is governed uh, at an unconscious level and a lot of the stuff we do is actually motivated at a at a unconscious level that we're not aware of you know you, a lot of people don't know why they do certain things they do something and then you ask them why they did it and they say I don't know well that's probably mm. the, the unconscious you know so it's about I think it's about kind of actively filling that unconscious part of your mind with kind of useful information and accurate information mm. rather than incorrect information you know well that's why this book is so important the gift of fear blink nasty people character disturbance in sheep's clothing snakes and suits all books like that i mean if even if you can't recite everything that you read in that book it does leave an impression on you but another important thing is Mm -hmm. networking with people Like, say you met somebody and you had a bad feeling about them. That person may not actually be out to do you physical harm or kill you, but they could still manipulate you in some way. Like, I had a couple experiences with this where I just felt really, really uncomfortable for around the person. I had bad feelings about them. I didn't know why. And it wasn't until later where I started talking with other people and they would tell me Mm -hmm. stories about them and how they interacted with them. And then it all just came together like no wonder I felt so bad about that person. I had no idea why. I didn't even really know that person. But hearing stories Mm -hmm. from other people about that person kind of informed me. So I think one of the Mm -hmm. predator's ways to get us from not doing that is saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't gossip. You shouldn't tell stories about people or judge them. But they know Mm -hmm. that people can share information. So that's why they discourage it. So networking is really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when everybody has that same feeling, oh, I just feel it felt off, mm-hmm. that off feeling. Yeah, that's weird, you know, because when you talk about that idea, of, I just had an off feeling about, and other people share that off feeling about someone. You can't put your finger on it. You could be questioning, well, why do you feel that way? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, if, I, if I'm honest and I objectively kind of look at the person, there's nothing that I can consciously say that is that that should cause me to feel this way, but I do. I reckon that must be coming from some part of your some part of your mind or whatever that that uh, that you're not aware of. You know, I mean, it's coming from you somewhere, and it's based on some information. And when it turns out to be correct, then that's good. But of course, it can turn out to be wrong if it's just you. I don't like that person for some reason. You need to explore that as well. It's all about exploring it, and and because uh, a lot of times it's like. Uh, Doug was saying, like the guy in the red hat type of thing, you know, um, that 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 can be wrong information. You know, that's clearly just uh, stuff that's based on as a generalization, you know, uh, of people in red hats are all bad, which obviously isn't true, you know, and isn't really based on anything mm-hmm. uh, objective. You can't you can't paint paint everybody with that same brush, and just because they're wearing a red hat, 
Um, but so it's tricky, you know, and it, it needs uh, reflection and thinking. And like you guys are saying, it needs uh, feedback from other people to work mm-hmm. through this stuff and to mm-hmm. dig out what those programs and biases are in our minds and uh, deep down and and whether they're accurate or not, you know. Because mm-hmm. no, no one wants to make the wrong decision about someone and treat somebody badly for no good reason who's actually a lovely person and just because they're wearing a red hat or because they've got a you know, a funny face or a funny moustache or I don't like the sound of their voice or something, uh, you're going to treat them badly. Nobody wants to do that, you know? So it's, Mm -hmm. but then at the same time, there are things about some people uh, like that, that are indicative of character disturbance or some other kind of psychological kind of uh, deviancy or something like that, you know, that are accurate, you know? Um, yeah, well, it's like, what are the, the pros and the cons? You know, I mean, if you trust your gut, say you get a weird feeling about somebody, so you, you trust your gut and you don't engage with them, the, the, the pros are that you avoided a potentially dangerous situation or being manipulated. The the cons are maybe that you, you know, you could be perceived as rude and, and who cares? Mm-hmm. It's not right. like you, it's not like you missed out on somebody who's going to be your best friend for the rest of your life, you know? Right, <laughs> right. When, it, when it comes down to it, I mean, I suppose error on the side of, Okay, being cautious and maybe being seen as rude, because uh, you can always correct that after the fact, you know. Mm-hmm. But in a, in a world mm-hmm. where there's so much hidden from us, and, and there are predators and our human predator types, and and people with all sorts of nefarious agendas that they cover up with exactly the opposite of what they intend, then it's probably wise to to be uh, be cautious, and if in doubt, err on the side of get the hell away from me. Uh, <laughs> Rather than yeah, come close type thing, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, yeah. the, the, you can correct. Like I said, you can correct the, the the bit of rudeness if afterwards you come to a more accurate or you figure some stuff out and you see that you were wrong. You can correct that. And but if you go with the default of everybody's nice and you shouldn't judge people and stuff, well, it's not so easy to correct. Yeah. Depending on the situation, it's not so easy to correct the potential damage that can cause you. Right. Also yeah. being in it's an like, environment um, that, like he talked about situational awareness, and there was a story in a book, you walk in somewhere and you just get a bad feeling that something's mm. going to happen, and it's like all those unseeable cues. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, well, it's like Gavin DeBecker, that, that story he told about, you know, um, I think it was a hypothetical story about a woman, you know, coming into a building, um, presses the button for the elevator, the elevator door opens, and there's a strange man in there. And right. she instantly gets the feeling like, um, I don't want to be in there with that man. But then she mm-hmm. proceeds to override it. I don't want him to think I'm rude. I don't want, you mm-hmm. know, there's no reason for me to be, to feel nervous around this person. There's no, mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing conscious that has led me to believe that this is dangerous. And then, so she goes into the elevator. Well, here she's put herself into a sound, a small soundproof room mm-hmm. with a man, um, for, you know, whatever, for a minute, two minutes. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's, she's put herself into mortal danger, basically, um, mm-hmm. ignoring those feelings. And he, he made the point that no animal in nature would ever do that, ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like that, that kind of uh, ability, if you want to call it that, to um, override those feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the lot of human beings, right? I mean, supposedly we're more evolved than animals, so our... Our, our, our souped up brains or our, our, our next step up the evolutionary scale from animals means that we can 
uh, override that, like you said, Doug. Uh, it basically means that we have the we have the choice. You know, to a certain extent, we we can choose to do something other than our instinct or our genetics or whatever uh, dictate to us. You know. So, and that obviously opens up the whole field to exploration and learning and developing something new. We, we as human beings have that ability, but Jesus, it makes it a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of people are under the false impression, like if someone means to do them, them harm, they're going to come at them like foaming at the mouth, screaming, flailing about. But if you look at nature and you look at predators stalking their prey, the predator is very calm. They're kind of low to the ground. They're studying. They're very quiet. They're focused. So you just have to extrapolate that into human predators. I mean, they're not going to come at you right. like all crazy like that. All they're case, studying. Case yeah, they're studying <laughs> you. They're trying to get as much information about you and the situation as possible in order to best make their move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he talked about mm-hmm. in the book how, you know, homicide is 20% strangers and 80% people you know. Mm-hmm. Right. I think didn't even, um, we've, we've talked sometimes on this show about uh, George uh, Gurdjieff. And uh, one of the things that he said comes to mind that uh, sincerity 100% of the time is a weakness. Mm-hmm. Or sincerity with everyone as a weakness, yeah. Sincerity with everyone, yeah. So if you're just sincere across the board with everyone you meet, uh, chances are you will sooner than later be taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And he also said, assume that everybody is crap until you've proven otherwise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's the kind of doctrine, right? Like we were saying, you know, just err on the side of everybody's poo. But, I mean, you can, the thing is, you can still do that and still be, uh, you can do that, have that attitude. Maybe that's that's a kind of, Gurdjieff was maybe a bit bit crude in the way he described <laughs> yeah. that, but um, uh, the, the point is you can have that. I suppose another way to say that is that mm, you can just be skeptical, mm-hmm. have a healthy skepticism about people until you get gather more data. But that doesn't mean you have to you know actually treat them like crap. You can be yeah. actually very nice to people. Uh, it just means that you mm. don't invest yourself all of a sudden injudiciously in someone who you don't really know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and decide that they're a wonderful person based on, you know, some outer appearance or whatever or, or whatever or what they tell you or what they say to you or the way that they flatter you or, or whatever, you know, because that's, you know, knowing human beings and as we should do, um, I mean, that's that's not a good idea because, you know, people not only lie to other people, they lie to themselves more often than anything else. So if they're lying to themselves, they're going to, by default, they're going to be lying to you as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to say it in a way that they're not aware of it. So they're going to say it, they're going to present you with a lie that uh, is dressed up like the truth, you know? So, I mean, knowing mm-hmm. all that, it just makes you, it's, it's not, it's not a nice way to see the world or other people, but it, geez, I mean, it, you, all you have to do is get stung by it enough times before you go, well, it's not nice, but it's, you know, it's reality. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's reality. I mean, the world is not a, a a nice place. Would would that it were a utopia? But you know, we yeah. have to worry right. about it's, this kind of right. Exactly, it's not the way it's not the way you would like it to be, and uh, and wish it to be. But it is the way it is. And I mean, I suppose the the idea of growing up and becoming a a real kind of adult or properly mature human being is is accepting that fact. You know, mm-hmm. uh, despite despite the fact mm-hmm. that it doesn't make you feel nice. Uh, and then finding ways to to make it as nice as as possible despite those conditions. 
Well, I found it interesting in the oh. chat how people talked about their experiences when they were kids. You know, uh, mm. back in the 70s and 80s, kids had a lot more freedom to be out alone and that they picked up on those fears right away. Mm-hmm. And now right. you kind of got the helicopter parent scenario going on where kids can't go outside, they can't go to the park, and they don't learn at a very young age how to read their environment properly. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're kind yeah. of fed this whole barrage of lies that, oh, the world is a safe space, you're going to meet the right person, go to college and marry, and and nobody's given the information to children to trust that intuition when you're on your bike and you see scary, you know, run like hell, or, does that make sense? Yeah. Do you guys mm-hmm. feel that? Like, it's it's yeah. not something, yeah. like, I really liked in his talk how he talked about that he would teach high school boys and girls about these basic kind of what we would consider common sense ideas mm-hmm. like if you're getting a bad read or you're feeling a bad vibe in somewhere to go with that and not push it away and be like oh the world is a nice happy place mm-hmm. yeah it kind of goes back to the the whole idea that your your kind of subconscious needs to be informed you know and and what these helicopter parents as you were describing them tend to do is they're 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 preventing their kids from actually learning they're preventing them from actually gathering that data, informing their subconscious so that it's something that they can act on. You know, if your parents are always like two steps away from you, then, you know, how much are you actually learning about the world? If they're mm-hmm. stepping in at the drop of a hat, there, anytime there's some kind of problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks, well for, I, thanks for calling, Joe. Yeah, I don't want to take too much of your time here. Uh, I'm going to push off. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's a great show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for calling, Joe. All right, see ya. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Those are some great points, and uh, that makes me think of, too, the, um, what we were talking about, the uh, unwarranted fear or, you know, kind of ambient anxiety and worry. Uh, and something comes to mind about uh, kind of the, the modern media, especially the Western media, and how that's probably diluting uh, and corrupting this uh, true sense of fear that we might have in dangerous situations uh, because we're so barraged all the time with, you know, be afraid of terrorists, you know, and be afraid of the, um, you know, the, all of the things that are out to get you. Uh, and so you, you live with this constant sense of, of background worry and anxiety and that, uh, mm. that corrupts your ability to feel the intuition in the moment um, because it's a different sensation. It's not the same thing. Yeah, he talks yeah, about... Yeah, it almost makes it, you not trust that. Yeah. Well, in the book, he talks about the relationship between real fear and worry is analogous to the relationship between pain and suffering, and pain and fear are necessary and valuable components of life. Suffering and worrying are destructive and unnecessary components of life. After decades of seeing worry in all forms, I've concluded that it hurts people much more than it helps. It interrupts clear thinking, wastes time, and shortens life. When worrying, ask yourself, how does this serve me? And you may well find that the cost of worrying is greater than the cost of changing. To be free of fear and yet still get its gift, there are three goals to strive for, and they're not easy to reach but worth trying. So he says, one is when you feel fear, listen. Two, when when you don't feel fear, don't manufacture it. Mm. And three, if you find yourself creating war- worry, explore and discover why. So like Tiffany was talking about with mm. women, you know, 
no woman wants to walk into an underground parking lot to her car at night and and be like, oh, it's all good. I feel fine. You know, <laughs> everyone kind of, every woman, I think, and I'm speculating here, but, you know, there is that anxiety about being alone in a parking lot at night, but to not feed into that, to mm-hmm. kind of observe your environment, make sure, you know, if you see other cars or other people, to have that awareness of what's going on around you, but not to start manufacturing all this fear mm-hmm. and kind of work yourself up into a frenzy. And then you can't see clearly. Right. One of our chatters here made a good point, uh, says, uh, and we see these stories of and videos of kids and teenagers going to strangers or lured through Facebook. And that, that I think is a, a good point that, um, you know, Facebook mostly, but social networks in general, uh, and the way people are interacting online now, um, it, it separates you from being able to read uh, these signs. Uh, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure most people, maybe everybody, uh, are aware of that man or that woman who they know uh, is a manipulative, uh, you know, threatening person who, if you were to look at their posts on, on Facebook, seemed like the nicest person in the world. You know, and they're they're great. They're magnanimous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so uh, it's very easy for people to uh, get the wrong interpretation of other people when all you see is is these 140 character snippets of of what they write online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's important for parents to teach their children. I know when I was growing up, my mother scared the devil out of me just telling me stories about when she was growing up and things that happened to her and like you know never ever go off with strangers and she made it very very clear through the stories that she told like people getting kidnapped and stuff like that these were true stories and stuff but she made it very clear that the world is not a safe place for you and people are out to get you especially if you're a woman especially if you're a child I mean, men get preyed on, too. I mean, but she made it very clear that there are bad people in the world and you better watch out and you better be on your guard. I don't know how much parents do that now. Like, and you have to incorporate social media into that, too, and just not let your kids sit there at the computer all day and you have no idea what they're up to or who they're talking to online. Stranger danger. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I wonder if this would be a good time for us to go to the last clip we have from Gavin DeBecker about uh, violence in America. Okay. If you want to play that, let's uh, we'll discuss briefly afterwards. I say right at the beginning of the book, here's where we are. And there's a lot of figures like that. Seventy children every week killed in the United States by a parent. Seventy a week. That's where we live. 20,000 guns every day coming into commerce. More guns in America than there are people right now. And so we have to start with where we live to remove the denial, because the denial says things like that don't happen in my neighborhood. Oh, yeah, I saw it on the news, but I'm not in a relationship right now, so I'm not at risk. Or that's only a risk for the old or for the young or for the armed or for the drug user. What do we all do when we hear about some violent death is we immediately find the way in which we can exclude ourselves from that risk. We say, oh, well, I don't live in the inner city, or I don't engage in that behavior, or I'm not out that late at night. I wanted to say to people strongly and powerfully and clearly, violence is a part of the human condition. It's not going anywhere. 
violence and conflict are part of human beings as much as they are part of chimpanzees and orangutans and lions. And we have to start by recognizing that we have got in this country an opportunity to introduce matriarchy, feminism, now has power in the United States. Women have power in the United States, where in every other culture men had power because of violence. Women have power because of communication. So we have an opportunity to do something to change it in our country. We're not using that opportunity. In a country where we fear violent crime, and what do we do every Friday and Saturday night but line up to see it at the movies? Couldn't one say that, forget the tabloids, let's mm. stick to this medium or the electronic media. Mm. Couldn't you say that reporters being honest and wanting people to deal with reality are reporting the violent news? Just as you want to report the violent news in your book, and you do. And that's what led me to wonder whether there wasn't some internal contradiction. Well, I'll tell you what I think is different. I report information that you read, and by nature of reading, you need to be in a relaxed state. You have no emergency. Your heartbeat doesn't go up. You're not panting as you read that. But when you turn on the television and they say, okay, we're going to the back of the building now. Lucy, are you there? How many police officers? Have ambulances arrived yet? And show me the pictures of the fire and show me the pictures. Whether more will die remains to be seen. What is a thing like that for? Whether more will die remains to be seen all the time. That's in the nature of life. You know, they have these stories that never end and they're, they're offered to you with urgency and with an emergency nature to them. If I, you know, broke into your house and said, quick, quick, come with me to save your life, you might follow me and you'd be pretty excited about it and pretty high energy. That's what they're doing 40 hours a day in most major cities, 40 hours a day of local news. The difference is, if I give you a piece of information in order to inform you, and I choose that information because I think it's valuable to you, they choose that information because it's got some graphic video, because there's a gruesome discovery made today in Reno, police made a grisly discovery today, they choose it because it's going to be fear-provoking, and most notably, it's not about your survival. Because why is something on the news? Because it's unusual. A cougar attacked a family of five today in Big Bear County. Well, I'm going to tell your viewers now, I give $1,000 to anybody this week who's attacked by a cougar in America. So your viewers can find me through this show, and somebody gets attacked by a cougar, they're getting a check from me. Because the fact that it's unusual is what makes it newsworthy. You don't see that those 70 children died this week killed by a parent. You don't see that a woman will die, you know, before this show is out, another woman dying from spousal homicide. That's not news. So that, just to that point, you know, that uh, the, the fear-mongering... Uh, uh, distorts our ability to read uh, reality um, because we're being fed these stories that are chosen for their sensationalist value um, and mm. real uh, dangerous threatening situations are not sensationalist mm -hmm. you know they're, they're like Tiff like you mentioned you know the predator uh, stalks you and observes you and, and looks for a moment of weakness uh, and oftentimes is very close uh, mm -hmm. to you in some way or another or tries to get close uh, and that's not a that's not a oh my god three alarm fire situation you know and so we, we we lose our ability to read those kind of threats I think yeah yeah I think that's true yeah you're not afraid of your abusive boyfriend but you're scared of being attacked by a cougar I mean <laughs> how much sense does that make yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, I think that that um, underlying state of anxiety that's produced by the media um, really does get in the way of your own reading instrument. Um, you know, if you're if you're constantly watching this uh, local news and you have this kind of constant fear that of you know whatever terrorists or um, lone gunmen shooters going crazy or whatever the case may be, you're going to have much less ability to have access to that kind of intuitive knowledge that might actually inform you if there really is danger. Mm-hmm. That you'll just be kind of in this in this background haze of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Not to say that the news is all bad, because as we all know that psychopaths do run the world and they do put things in action that can be harmful for us on the worldwide stage. So it's not like you should bury your head in the sand, but you should look at no. these kind of things with a clear mind and just take them on board. But if you're like freaking out all the time over every news story that you hear about, I mean, that's not a good situation to be in. Yeah. Having a critical eye. Yeah. Well, you really see people who watch. You did also specify. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you do see people who watch the nightly news all the time and they're afraid, you know, terrorists and, oh, you're going to get on a plane. And what if, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody hijacks it and it's just like, uh, it's like this instant, constant fear-based reality for people, you know, don't leave your home, don't get in your car because you might die. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. He did also specify local news, which I think does tend to be... I mean, all news is sensationalistic, but the the local news is just kind of mind blowing how <laughs> how anxiety promoting it is. Mm-hmm. It just makes me think of the uh, the, the the terror alert threat level. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or the Zika virus. It's just like, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's such a ridiculous thing. I mean, first of all, who who actually believes that it, you know that the government is sharing any classified data with the public about what they think is going to happen and putting it on the news as threat level orange that on its face is ridiculous but i mean the uh, the uh, the obvious side effect of it is you know well if the meter goes up you need to be more afraid you know and so <laughs> mm-hmm. that that in itself is like i was saying before too it's detaching us from our own sense of intuition about actual dangerous situations in our immediate reality but like well i will just mm-hmm. modulate my fear level based on this the, the the level of the meter that i saw on cnn you know yeah forget about my own intuition about my immediate environment i'll just let the government or you know whatever other authority there is out there i'll just let them protect me they know what's best yep. yeah you know and get extra duct tape plastic <laughs> your windows Get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, this has been a good discussion. I don't know if you guys, how you feel about going to the pet health segment here. Okay. Yeah. Good. Cool. So we, we have a, a good uh, long segment from Zoya today. So let's go to that and we will come back and wrap up after this. Yeah, this is all about if animals can understand you. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Molly Show. My name is Zoya, 
And today I would like to share with you a very interesting and fascinating talk by creator of Thoughtly2 YouTube channel that is dedicated to covering various facts. The topic of the recording is can animals understand humans? Like for example, can your dog really understand when you tell him that he's a good dog? Or it's only a matter of intonation and other subtle signs? Listen on because there is a wealth of truly curious information in this talk. Enjoy! Hey, 42 here. 62% of people claim that their pets understand what they say. Whether or not animals can hear, recognize and possibly even understand what humans say has always been a profound mystery. Recent evidence attempts to reveal once and for all whether Tony the Terrier knows the difference between good boy and Tony, did you chew my slippers? Dogs may respond to these sentences. But do dogs and other animals actually understand the meaning behind those sentences or are they just well trained? You may be very surprised by what you're about to discover about animal perception. In 1984, researchers at the National Marine Mammal Foundation in California noticed something quite unusual. They claimed that they heard voices of people talking around an enclosure where they kept a beluga whale known as Nog. They were fairly certain it wasn't anything paranormal. After all, the voices sounded so real. Eventually, a diver went into the tank where Nock was being held, and he noticed the strangest thing. Nock, the beluga whale, was talking to him in an eerily human-like voice. Incredibly, the whale reportedly told the diver to get out. This is an actual recording of Nock imitating human speech. It kind of sounds like a human talking through a kazoo, doesn't it? That's because unlike humans who use their larynx, whales use their nasal tract to produce sounds, making everything sound all nasally. It's believed that Nock, having lived most of his life in close proximity to humans, learned to mimic the human voice. But the real question is, was Nock merely repeating noises that he picked up from humans, or did he actually understand the meaning behind what he was saying? Asian elephants, seals and parrots have also been known to imitate human speech. But do they understand what they are saying? And do they understand what we say to them? In 1891, a German high school mathematics teacher named Wilhelm von Osten convinced himself that animals could be taught basic mathematics. He tried to teach maths to a cat, a horse and a bear. The cat couldn't care less and was only interested in itself. The bear was just downright hostile towards him, but the horse showed great promise. After extensive tutelage, the horse, named Hans, learned to tap his hoof in response to numbers that von Osten would write on his blackboard. If von Osten wrote the number two, Hans would tap his hoof twice. If he wrote four, Hans would tap four times and so on. Spurred on by this success, von Osten proceeded to teach Hans to answer basic mathematical equations. Von Osten would write on the blackboard 2 plus 2 equals and Hans would tap his hoof four times. Von Osten was delighted and exhibited Hans to the public all over Germany. During these shows, which Von Osten never charged admission for, the crowd were awe-stricken as Hans correctly answered an array of basic maths equations by using his hoof to tap out the answers. Hans could seemingly add, subtract, 
Multiply, divide and even work out the square root of a number. Hans will correct the answer around 89% of the questions. The news of Hans the genius horse rapidly spread across Germany. But along with Hans's fame came critics and skeptics. A psychologist, Oscar Funks, asked to do some experiments with Hans, to which von Osten agreed. Oscar Funks erected a large tent to perform the experiments in, to eradicate the possibility of Hans being influenced by outside stimuli. As a control test, Funks asked von Osten to step inside the tent and ask Hans mathematical questions like he usually does. As expected, Hans got most of the questions correct. However, Funks then asked von Osten to move a little farther away from Hans whilst he asked the questions. And subsequently, Hans got far fewer answers correct. Finally, Funks told von Osten to ask Hans questions that he knew von Osten did not know the answer to. When von Osten asked these questions, the accuracy of Hans's answers fell to almost zero. It appeared that in order for Hans to get the answer correct, the person asking the question had to know the answer to the question also. These results were very strange, but incredibly interesting. So Funks investigated further. He observed von Osten's facial expressions and posture whilst he was asking Hans the questions. Funks noticed von Osten's facial expression and posture changed right after he asked a question. His face and posture would tense up in expectation of Hans's answer. However, each time Hans tapped his hoof and got closer to the correct answer, von Osten's posture and expressions would relax and become happier because he was relieved that Hans had seemingly arrived at the correct answer all by himself. It transpired that the horse was receiving small visual clues that acted as feedback. The horse would start tapping as soon as he observed von Osten asking the question and then tensing up. When the tension had alleviated from von Osten's face, Hans would stop tapping his hoof. Hans was never actually doing any mathematics. He was simply well attuned to his owner's visual clues. Von Osten was shocked at this revelation because he was completely unaware that he was providing Hans with these unconscious visual clues. He genuinely thought that his horse was a genius. The results of Funk's experiment had enormous effects on how all scientific experiments would be carried out in the future. This phenomenon came to be known as the Clever Hans Effect. The Clever Hans Effect as we know it today is when an experimenter unwittingly alters the results of an experiment simply because he or she is expecting a certain result. The simple expectation for something to happen can have huge consequences on an experiment's results without the experimenter even realizing it. These days, necessary measures are taken when working with both humans and animals to prevent the clever Hans effect from altering the results of experiments. A border collie named Rico came into the spotlight in 2004 after being intensively studied by animal psychologists from the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany. The researchers showed such a great interest in Rico because his owners reported that he could understand over 200 words, a feat previously unheard of in the canine kingdom. To test whether Rico's skills were a bunch of fluff or a truly bona fide talent, the researchers set up an experiment. The researchers arranged 200 toys on the floor in a room adjacent to where Rico was being held. They did this 10 toys at a time. 
Each toy had a unique name, such as Fluffy or Squeezy. Rico's owners had already trained him to remember the name of each toy. Each time, the researchers would let Rico into the room with the toys and ask Rico to fetch a toy, then another toy, and then another, until Rico had fetched all ten toys. Whilst the researchers were issuing commands to Rico, they stayed on the other side of a dividing wall, where Rico could hear them but not see them, to eliminate the clever Hans effect. In total, Rico successfully remembered and retrieved 93% of the toys. Impressive, but this was only a test of Rico's memory, not his cognitive function, i.e. his ability to use logic and inference just like a human. So, the researchers did a second experiment. They arranged seven items in the room with an eighth item, which was brand new, which they gave a unique name to. Rico had never seen or heard the name of this new item before. Amazingly, when Rico was let into the room and asked to fetch the new item, he was very quickly able to infer which was the new toy and fetched it straight away. Rico seemingly used a process of deduction and elimination. This is called fast mapping, a process where one is able to quickly learn a new concept after a single exposure to brand new information. Human toddlers do this all the time, it's how they learn. Even more amazingly, Rico was able to fetch the new toys again four weeks later, having only seen them once. Out of the six new items that Rico was shown four weeks prior, he remembered three of them four weeks later. Interestingly, three out of six is the same rate at which adult humans are able to remember things that they saw four weeks ago. Chaser is another Border Collie who can reportedly remember the name of a thousand toys and can retrieve each one of them just like Rico. But Chaser has another unique talent. She is able to recognise verbs. From a young age, Chaser's owner, a retired psychologist, trained Chaser to understand and utilise three verbs. Nose, paw and fetch. When Chaser's owner says, poor Slinky, Chaser will go over to the toy named Slinky and put her paw on it. Similarly, if Nose Slinky is said, Chaser will put her nose on the Slinky toy. And when Fetch Slinky is said, Chaser will fetch the Slinky toy. Chaser's owner is able to swap the verb and the name of the toy for any one of a thousand different toys, and Chaser will go over to the correct toy and do the correct action almost 100% of the time. That's about the same cognitive ability as a three-year-old human child. This also demonstrates something astonishing. Chaser doesn't simply remember each and every command. It's not just a cheap memory trick. Chaser's brain is actually using cognitive function to determine what to do in each given situation. This is no different to how a human brain works. Although this is rather basic stuff for an adult human, it's an amazing display of cognitive ability and logical inference for an animal. It demonstrates that dogs do understand what we say, provided they are given the opportunity to learn these human-like concepts as a puppy. But that's no different from a human. Humans have to learn this stuff too. We aren't born knowing what go get daddy a beer means. As a baby, we learn the individual words that construct that sentence. And then, as a toddler, we use our brain's cognitive ability, especially our fast mapping ability, to know what we should do when those words are arranged into that sentence in that order, just like Rico and Chaser are doing. 
Dogs aren't able to learn as fast or to the same extent as humans, so realistically their ability is capped when compared to humans. However, provided they are given the correct education and training from an early age, dogs most definitely can understand at least a small percentage of what you say to them. So, when you say, time for walkies, and your dog goes freaking mental, it may not just be because they have associated the word walkies with running about outside with their beloved owner. There's actually some very basic level of understanding there, but don't think you can go and have full-blown esoteric conversations with your canine buddy. They may understand the odd word or two, but first and foremost, dogs use smell to communicate and differentiate between objects and people. They're probably going to understand a lot more of what you're trying to communicate to them if you roll around in the garden for 10 minutes then let them sniff you than if you try to explain to them why you've had such a bad day at the office. So far, we've only talked about dogs, horses and whales. But what about other animals? After all, a spectrum of animal cognition spans the entire animal kingdom. Take Coco the gorilla, for example. Coco is a female gorilla who has learned a modified version of American Sign Language. Coco was taught from a very early age, and now she can reportedly understand and use 1,000 different signs of what her trainer calls Gorilla Sign Language, and she understands over 2,000 words of spoken English. Naturally, Coco has been the subject of numerous scientific studies, articles and books, But whether or not Coco actually understands sign language in the same way a human does is a topic of hot debate. Some researchers argue that Coco hasn't actually mastered sign language at all, and she doesn't understand the words she is signing. They insist that Coco's human-like sign language abilities are simply a result of operant conditioning. Operant conditioning is when someone learns to do something because there's a reward at the end of it. For example, if you showed a toddler three different coloured boxes, blue, green and red, and then placed a sweet in the green box, the toddler would then learn to always open the green box in the future in order to get the sweet. Coco may have simply learnt to make certain shapes and signs with her hands because she is rewarded for doing so. Video evidence showed that Coco was also being influenced by the clever Hans effect. Her trainers were giving her unconscious facial clues to prompt her to make certain gestures with her hands. Despite all this, Coco's trainers are adamant that there's more going on in Coco's head than researchers give her credit for. One piece of evidence which suggests a greater level of cognition in Coco's brain occurred when Coco's baby was taken away from her. The day after her baby was removed, she reportedly signed the word baby to her keeper This is known as displacement, the ability to talk about objects that are not currently present in the room, and it's something that we thought was unique to humans, and it's very rarely observed in the animal kingdom. Also, Coco has been known to talk about new objects that she hasn't even been taught how to sign. For example, Coco has never been taught the sign language for the word ring, but Coco combined the signs for finger and bracelet to refer to a ring. And if you think about it, a ring is just a tiny bracelet for your finger. That's pretty smart going, Coco. Events such as this suggest that Coco has a higher level of understanding of the word she is actually signing. But there's a dark side to all that gorilla intelligence. Coco enjoys seeing human nipples, and she often asks her female caregivers using sign language to show her their nipples. 
This unusual behaviour actually resulted in a sexual harassment lawsuit by one of Coco's female caregivers in 2005. Maybe it's not such a good idea we try to communicate with animals after all. Dolphins are often said to be one of the smartest animals in the world, and they certainly proved it in a 1984 study. Two bottlenose dolphins were taught human language. The first dolphin, named Phoenix, was taught how to comprehend human speech. The second dolphin, Akikamai, was taught a form of sign language. Both dolphins were taught a large variety of words, such as object names, actions and object modifiers, all of which could be combined and rearranged into hundreds of unique sentences to form a command. For example, swim to the blue ring or pick up the red ring. The commands were given to the dolphins using computer-generated voices and videos to prevent the clever Hans effect. Both dolphins were able to comprehend and execute the given commands at a much higher success rate than what would be considered chance. Understanding words and simple one-word commands is one thing, but for an animal to understand complex three to five word commands and accurately follow them is quite simply astonishing. Experiments such as these prove that many animals have an unprecedented level of understanding of human speech and communication. Up to now, we've only explored a minute fraction of intellect within the animal kingdom. Who knows what some animals are really capable of? A real-life Planet of the Apes may be just around the corner, but until then, you should probably watch what you're saying around your pets. They may be listening a bit more attentively than you think. Thanks for the view. Subscribe for more. 42. Those goats sound like they understood that. Yeah. <laughs> Why would they take Coco's baby away? Why would they do such a thing? Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah. Well, thank you, Zoya, for sharing that with us. That was really fascinating. <laughs> so, um, well, that is our show for today. Uh, we'd like to thank our chat participants for uh, taking part in the chat, and thanks to our caller, Joe. Um, really appreciate you guys listening. Um, be sure to tune into the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern time, and you can go to radio.sot.net on Sunday. It will show the uh, the airtime in your local time zone on that site. Um, and uh, that's it for today. So I guess we will sign off, and we'll see you next Friday. Okay. See you, everybody. Have a Bye. good weekend, everybody.